Hi everyone, this is Nikki, your host. Happy New Year to you all. I'm hoping that 2022 is kinder to us all. And I just want to say I am in such, such deep gratitude and just simply in awe that this little show coming out of my bedroom is listened to in so many different corners of the world and being streamed in over 55 countries. I do not take that for granted. And I don't know if y'all can notice uh, through my voice, but I'm literally smiling from ear to ear. So thank you all so, so much for tuning in, for sharing it with friends, for reviewing it on Apple Podcasts and all the things, posting it on your stories. Um, I'm so, so grateful. And on that note, I want to ask folks that tune in who find this to be a valuable contribution. And if you feel like you learn something new every time you tune into the podcast, please become a Patreon subscriber. Make this feel sustainable and like a mutual exchange. You can become a Patreon subscriber for just $3 a month. And you can join in patreon.com slash venusroots. All right, let's get started. Hey everyone, you are tuned in for another episode of Getting to the Root of It with Venus Roots, aka me, your host. It is a new year, but the conditions are looking quite similar. And I'm very excited um, for today's guest and to be kicking the year off with this guest because his work has been very, very clarifying and supportive for me in trying to understand indigenous solidarity, especially for folks who are looking to build Black liberation and live Black liberation. And today we have Nick Estes. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah. Nick, there are like a million and one things you do, so it's pretty hard to summarize. (laughs) But you are an incredible Indigenous scholar, professor, writer, um, co-founder of the Red Nation, uh, podcast host of the Red Nation podcast, and many, many, many other things that we can get into. I'm super grateful um, to be talking to you today and to sort of be kicking the year off this and uh, on the podcast with you particularly. Um, because again, without even realizing when we scheduled our conversation, it's landing on the anniversary of the January 6th riots of the Capitol, which of course means a million and one hot takes online and just a lot of conversation. Um, I'm not too interested in talking about that particularly, but I am really curious to hear your your thoughts on you know, when I do think of January 6th, I see it as a sort of um, heightened response from a faction of the right wing of this country in times of crisis, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know that they would have done that had it not been in a pandemic and ongoing thing, right? Because when you hear a lot of these folks, it sort of felt like the end of times for them. Um, and, you know, there's been all types of responses to these like cumulative um, crises of these past two years and beyond. And I've been really, really, really particularly inspired by sort of taking time to learn and follow some of the organized responses from a lot of countries in the global south and comrades all over the global south. I'm curious to hear some of your thoughts around, like, what are some top of line differences um, in the ways in which movement and left movement in this country or maybe a lack of um, has responded to the pandemic? 
here in Turtle Island, the United States, versus some of the organized mass movement responses we've seen all over the global south? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. And let's start with January 6th and what happened last year. Um, I think there's a lot of sort of liberal slash liberal centrist kind of fear mongering around uh, mm. this uh, so-called attempted coup attempt, um, which I do think, you know, just not to be sort of flippant about it, there is some validity in this and the fact that like many high ranking generals within the military were not, uh, you know, basically had informal stand down orders to not intervene um, when this was going on. I think there's a larger conspiracy at play. I don't think like the actors in, in involved, like Trump and his inner circle, as well as sort of like the corporate, you know, elite that were backing him, you know, were are totally innocent of this. And I think that there was, um, you know, some kind of collaboration with the military that's that's been coming out and and just like the the basic kind of like you know, run of the mill, very boring uh, hearings, um, which I find really fascinating, you know, be, but it's like the, but what I think the media and the pundit class is really focuses, focused on is the kind of cultural outcomes and not so much the fact that like you have one of the most powerful military states in the world that's kind of organizing an auto coup or a self coup of its, of its, you know, kind of deep state apparatus, so to speak, mm -hmm. but not to get into like that kind of thinking. It's just, you know, it's just, it's an, it's an absurd, you know, uh, it becomes absurd. Um, but we have to think about, you know, the way that the Democrats, you know, almost to the same degree of belief, uh, held it held that Trump hadn't really won the 2016 elections and this whole conspiracy around Russiagate. And so instead of, you know, like actually focusing on, you know, real, real basic class issues in this country, especially that center around the upholding of white supremacy and its deadly outcomes, we get this culture war uh, issue of like, oh, Russia, you know, an external foreign actor like Russia is interfering in U.S. elections as if the United States hasn't made that its modus operandi for at least the last century, you know? Right. I mean, it's interfered with our governmental, you know, machinations as indigenous people. Mm. Uh, we still live under colonialism, like the person who's in charge of our very, you know, our everyday lives, we don't vote for. And most people in this country probably don't even know that we have an appointed head of our entire administration, which is currently Deb Holland. You know, she's a secretary of interior. She's a non-elected official that oversees the daily lives and destinies of indigenous peoples in this country. And we want to talk about democracy. And we want to talk about, you know, how the, the, democratic institutions of this country are eroding. And I, you know, I would say in whose interest, probably mm -hmm. January 6th and probably Russiagate represent more uh, of an internal battle amongst the ruling class than they do amongst, you know, everyday people who probably aren't really interested in the outcomes of these things anyways. Um, unless, you know, you're a black person, unless you're a person of color who, uh, you know, is obviously the target and becomes the scapegoat for a lot of these, you know, these issues. And I, I just want to also point out that it's like, why is it that we, you know, um, get remembrances and, you know, of January 6th without understanding it wasn't, they weren't really going after. I mean, many of these, the, the fascist right are not targeting the elites so much as they have created a boogeyman out of so-called wokeness culture or uh, Black Lives Matter. Like this is this is a lot. We're gonna what we're gonna experience. Like 
is a series of, of long-term, like years on end, backlash for 26 million people taking to the street in, 20, uh, in 2020 mm-hmm. in defense of Black lives. That's really what, that's what January 6th was about. You know, they were chanting white power. They were, you know, calling, uh, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the Black Capitol Police, the N-word. Like, this was like an open racist, like, attack. Like, it's, mm-hmm. you know... So what if the the Democratic Party or the the elites, the elected officials, were a stand-in for that animosity? But you know, why wasn't there the same kind of outrage when you know Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, like executed two uh, you know two white people who were standing in solidarity with Black Lives, you know, in in public? Like we want to talk about class solidarity. We want to talk about all these things. Why is it that you know the right? And many of these so-called like civil libertarians are celebrating the murder of two white kids who are from the working class who are standing in solidarity. You know, that's the outrage. That's the atrocity, in my opinion, is like, how is it that we got from 2020 with this immense amount of class solidarity in the streets, Mm -hmm. multinational, multiracial class solidarity to 2022, where all we can think about is this, you know, kind of hallucinatory insurrection because it is it's very hallucinatory it seems surreal that this is the state of politics in the united states without even really recognizing the 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 threat that is posed by the the kind of organizing um of the right wing and it's kind of fascist and more kind of violent elements Yeah. yeah that is very scary but it's to say that like what has happened you know in in the interim of of all of this how many people have died? I think the last I, I, I counted uh, or I saw as official number, I think it was eighty or 840,000 people have succumbed to COVID-19 uh, in the United States. Um, I was also doing some kind of like table, what do they call it? Napkin math or whatever. <laughs> I, looked this, I looked this up and it was like over 95% of those people are over the age of 50. Hmm. And I was, I was thinking like, you know, the kind of callousness in, in which people talk about not doing and or enforcing just basic kind of social solidarity of wearing a mask or, you know, trying not to get pe- other people sick who may be immunocompromised or who may be elders in our culture and indigenous people. If you're legally in our in our tribe, if you're over the age of 51, you are by definition an elder and you get elder benefits. And they're, you know, it's not just a legal or a, a kind of a... Um, you know, implemented policy in the tribe itself, but socially and culturally, elders are revered for their social standing and the life experiences that they've had. Hmm. And now if you think about this country and the way that it's literally just sacrificed old people for the sake of what, I'm not really quite sure, other than keeping an economy open, other than, you know, for-profit kind of, you know, um, for-profit mentality, like that to me is a very, very scary sign of what not just this, you know, this society is allowing to commit on behalf of its senses of freedom, but what this state and what these corporations are allowing, you know, to, to, to happen. Like we're, this is a mass casualty event, right? Yeah. I mean like nearly almost, almost a million people. And I always have to remind myself, like, these are people with families, partners, loved ones, like, friends neighbor like it's it's hard like for me it's hard to materialize like actually think of how many people that is 
because it's so much, so much loss. And to think about it in terms of you know, the second part of your question about what other states are doing, I mean, there's in the uh, let's just talk about the kind of general anti-status attitude in the United States. Like there was, you know, first of all, let's put some numbers out there. I like numbers. I'm a numbers guy. I'm, I'm a humanities scholar, but I like numbers because they kind of give you a glimpse of, you know, what reality uh, may or may not be. But so in indigenous communities and federally recognized tribes, I think the COVID, the COVID vaccination rates are about 95%. It's over. We're, we're the one of the highest vaccinated, if not the highest vaccinated demographic in the United States. Think about that in terms of all the other kind of, um, you know, quality of life outcomes for indigenous people, poverty, suicide, alcohol, not so much alcoholism, but diabetes, you know, things like things of that nature that are, are directly related to colonialism, but yet nonetheless, even, and also if you look at like, I just saw the statistics come out um, today about federal funding per capita funding for uh, healthcare. Um, you know, I think a, a per capita funding for the VA, the Veterans Association is around $10,000. Medicare Medicaid is between six to $8,000 for IHS, for Indian health services per capita for indigenous people, it's less than $4,000 hmm. or I write it around $4,000. So even with our, you know, underfunded healthcare system, uh, it's also put to put that into perspective. I think keeping somebody in, in prison, um, I think the healthcare that they pay for federal prisoners is anywhere between eight to $10,000, just to kind of keep that in mind. Um, and thinking about that, and, you know, in terms of like the, the per capita funding for just native people, like, we have an under resourced and underfunded uh, healthcare system, but mm -hmm. we nonetheless have 95% vaccination rates. It's not about um, it's not about just having material resources. There's there's kind of an intangible element of this about having a committed value system that prioritizes you know social solidarity and health amongst the most vulnerable. And if we look at COVID nineteen in, in a place like Cuba, for example, there was an article that just came out. I think it was today uh, by the Guardian where they quoted some professor from the Northeast, and he said, oh. Cuban vaccination rates and, you know, the their development of, of vaccines under the embargoes and lack of resources is a form of magical realism because how could they do this, you know? And I, I read- magical I read, realism. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it, it's in, in his mind, in his thinking, it's like only, you know, the only reason why, you know, that the, the Cuba or or whatever country you know could have such a high vaccination rate uh, but also develop vaccines is because of, of magic it wasn't magic it's socialism on one hand in a state directed economy on the other but it's also just a general collective i think this is what's most important a general collective understanding that this is a collective problem not a private yeah. problem not a matter of my rights versus you know the state and i think that's where we've always kind of run into conflict with the state itself as indigenous people, because there is, you know, like going back to this idea of anti-statism, you know, 95, okay, yeah, 95% of, of indigenous people in this country have been vaccinated. Well, there was also another study a couple of years ago that came out that asked indigenous people their level of trust in the federal government. 
And our level of distrust in the federal government is 95% for very good reason, right? Of course. But when it comes down to organizing society around the prioritizing society and, you know, collective social wealth and resources around meeting people's basic needs, it seems to me, the evidence suggests that we are first in line, you know? And so while there is this kind of general kind of organic anti-statism because the state itself has been colonial and genocidal towards us, there is a deeper understanding that we actually need to help our people. Yeah. And the state is, you know, in this moment in time, because of the federal, you know, the fiduciary responsibility and the trust relation that they have with um, tribal nations, it's going to be the primary organizer of health, you know, health outcomes for us in this, in this moment in time. And, you know, we can look to, you know, China, we can look to the state of Kerala and, and India uh, as other examples, or even Vietnam uh, and how they've handled uh, COVID-19. It's like the, the United States does not have a leg to stand on to criticize the rest of the world. Where are the calls from the United Nations for the human rights violations against the elderly in this country, mm. against, you know, children who are being exposed to it almost purposefully in schools because of this weird culture war thing that we need to open up schools when the state and employers have refused to provide adequate health care to people. And so then all of a sudden teachers become the bad people in this, in this, you know, in this political climate. And to me, it's like going back to the January 6th, going back to all of this, you know, the, these larger questions that we're having, this country prefers to demonize caregivers and caretakers, teachers, nurses, you know, hospital staff, um, more than it cares to demonize or to criticize the caretakers of violence, such as mm. the military and the police, you know, why is it that nobody is questioning the bloated budget of the Pentagon, you know, in this moment in time. I mean, the biggest one yet in history. In history, and they, and they, they the Pentagon officials, the intel, you know, the the defense community, throws out a random number just because they know that they're going to get, they're going to, you know, it's always an overestimate because they know mm. they're going to have to negotiate it back. There wasn't even a negotiation this year. They just threw some random number out there, and, and they're, they're like, "Word, yeah, yeah. let's cool. do this." But there are no demands. There's no crystal crystallized demands for a reform of the health, the for-profit healthcare system. Mm. There are no demands for universal basic, you know, healthcare. There are no demands uh, for education. The you know we're just like waiting for you know on pins and needles on whether or not Biden is going to just forever delay student debt. You know, um, mm -hmm. I am like I'm not employed. I right am. Now. I was not <laughs> yeah. looking forward to that in January. I was like precisely. Yeah, no, it was, I was in the same boat and, and this is, this is where we're at. You know, it's like, it's, it's a very dire situation to be in, but I think, you know, we can't just, we can't just say that like, oh, you know, uh, Cuba or, you know, China is some kind of utopian model. They're not utopian because utopians don't exist. Utopias don't exist. That, that's a, the name of a utopia they're real examples of alternatives of like how we can organize our health systems around, you know, the needs of, of people and the most vulnerable in society. And we don't have to even look far in this country. When we look at an underfunded, corrupt, and sometimes genocidal healthcare system called the Indian Health Service, which is also, you know, in very many ways responsible for forced sterilization of native women 
but nonetheless, you know, over a period of self-determination and, you know, really trying to indigenize and take control over the healthcare system that will work for us has prioritized not only indigenous people, but I remember my tribe was giving out vaccines mm -hmm. to non-indigenous people. It's not just about us. You know, this isn't just a native issue, you know, in that, in that sense, when, you know, even at the health clinic that I was going to, when I lived in Albuquerque, they served everybody in line. There was no discrimination. And I remember going to test uh, sites, um, you know, for COVID-19 COVID elsewhere, and they were very much racialized, um, definitely different class kind of characteristics of different parts of the city of where you got your free COVID tests. But I'll say, uh, I'll say, you know, the one in uh, the health clinic in First Nations Health Clinic in Albuquerque was in a place called the War Zone, uh, which is also known as the International District where all the poor brown people live and the, you know, all the black uh, Mexicanos, Nuevo Mexicanos, indigenous people, uh, even some refugee communities live, they were all in line for the COVID-19, you know, tests and as, as well as getting vaccinated and nobody was turned away, you know? And so, but it, it can't just rely on, you know, us, we're a minority of a minority population, you know, we can get into that, but it's, those values are there, you know, they're not just, yeah. And I would say that they're in many different communities, not just indigenous communities, um, that it, I don't think it's it's anathema to have basic human solidarity to just give somebody a vaccine or to, um, you know, offer a free test. Like that's that's what we the lesson we should have learned from this pandemic. But instead, I think the media elite and the corporate elite are really trying to lead us down to a path of d further division. You know, yeah. not that I want to be on the side of these January 6th insurrectionist people, mm -hmm. but but I mean, in terms of not like actually seeing real alternatives um, that actually exist. Yeah. I mean, like just like hearing you like everything you offered, like just so much was going off for me because, you know, I was also reading something similar around like how Puerto Rico, because it's considered as part of the United States. So they're like considering it in the U.S. statistics also place with super super high vaccination rate and for me it was very clear what came to mind was not magical realism it was that um the people on the island had have you know as one of the world's oldest colonies as, as it's sometimes labeled and living under the colonial boot of this country and then also having to sort of survive the 2017 hurricane and then mm. kind of everything that happened that will deepen your sort of value of collective well-being and your sort of value of human life not just of your own but of those around you and just beyond you and yeah it's really interesting how that that's sort of like difficult to to think of when you're so used to like the alienation that capitalism and white supremacy and this country kind of like beats onto us every single day um because yeah, i'm like it's not it's not magical realism it's very much so like giving a shit not just about you but about other mm. people because you know what it's like to not have a safety net because you know what it's like um to lose people you care about and lose people in your community um and you just have a higher regard for life and i think that's something that has been completely stripped away from like the cultural fabric of the united states i mean one can argue what like was never part of the cultural fabric right because just like the formation of this country and of this state is inherently violent inherently colonial and all the things but you know i think hearing you kind of 
talk about these alternatives and me bringing up Puerto Rico. And it makes me think also of the sort of climate moment, right? Um, because that, you know, the climate is another another thing that binds us all, right? Or one would think. Um, it's a sort of crisis that is impending for us all, particularly people of the global south, particularly black, indigenous, brown people, working class people, poor people all over the world. Um, and, you know, I, I'm going to say this with a preface that I have not watched um, the new Netflix um, film, Don't Look Up. So I might say things that are incorrect and that's okay. I'm mostly just basing my um assumptions based on the trailer but you know nick i was like watching the trailer because there's so much hype about it like i saw that it broke netflix records which for me tells me okay we're we're sensing the the in, the urgency of taking climate crisis seriously um it seems like people everyday people or people watching this are really hung at least millions of people are hungry for stories that are centering the climate right but just based off the trailer alone, I could be wrong, it looked really, really, really white. And kind of how it struck me from just like the minute and a half on YouTube was that, you know, it's a sort of like well-meaning white scientist from the U.S. or like the global north. And they're sort of like trying to bring reason to everyone and like federal agencies and like everyone's kind of like, this is a joke, who cares? And everyone's kind of like bimboed out. Um but again, I could be wrong. I did not see anything that would sort of criticize like the military industrial complex, right? Which we know is like the largest polluter of the world, right? Nothing that even like hints to indigenous sovereignty, land back, land sovereignty. And I worry that we continue to fall in these traps of like liberal solutions. That's like we just maybe need another app or like better policy, like slightly kinder policies. You know how even like decolonization now is like starting to mean for some people like more inclusive. Like it, it's like, that's not what decolonizing means. So yeah, I'm saying all this to say, I'm like, you know, we have millions of people watching media like this, but I'm curious, you know, how that sort of lands for you and the sort of absence of the, the fact that indigenous peoples, not just here, but all over the world, have actually been stewarding and protecting the land time and time again. And that there's actually like no way out of the climate catastrophe that doesn't include that sort of sovereignty and knowledge and wisdom. Yeah. The yeah, the first thing I'll say is that in Don't Look Up, um, it begins with, I believe, what's called the Subaru telescope. Uh, Jennifer Lawrence and Leo DiCaprio's character are scientists there, astronomers? I think there's, I can't even remember, some kind of science people. Um, but it's at the Subaru telescope that they detect this kind of planet destroying comet that's on the way to, you know, hit Earth. Um, and, you know, we might just be like, okay, that's, you know, science doing science. But the Subaru telescope is a top. And my, my friend uh, and comrade, Ohiki Amele, who's a Kanaka Mali scholar based in Toronto right now. Uh, pointed this out, you know, to me, you know, it's, it's, this is telescope is atop Mauna Kea, which is a sacred site to Kanaka Maoli people in Hawaii, which is a military occupied mm. uh, island nation or island nations of the Pacific, one of many, right, that is at the center of the so called ring of fire and the militarization of the Pacific and just 
before I get to get look up, uh, don't look up, I want to kind of put this into context because I think some people think about, you know, the 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 Native Hawaiian protest to the uh, Mauna Kea telescopes, the 30 meter telescope, which was, you know, being constructed as kind of an anti-science movement uh, is really kind of unfounded because nobody like you can't talk about science in this nation without talking about the military industrial complex, especially mm -hmm. these telescopes in conjunction with these kind of defense, you know, war games exercises that are working hand in hand and oftentimes getting the same kind of funding from the same places. And also, you know, you, like, so any kind of civilian science thing in these, in a lot of these places are also tied to the military industrial complex. Um, but also like the very basic thing, it's like you have a, a million places to place a telescope and we're just asking you not to put it here and you decide to put it here. Like, that's just colonialism. That's like, consent, you know, fundamentally, first and foremost, you know, we also have issues of in Oahu, you know, the Navy has a facility there that's least, you know, that where they have underground diesel uh, tanks that have been leaking into the, the water supply. Um, and this is, you know, this is part and parcel to the telescope apparatus that is there, the, the constellation of, you know, scientific and military endeavors. Um, to house this population, this uh, transient population, this military occupation that's happening in, in Hawaiian homelands. Um, and it's contaminating, you know, uh, underground aquifer where many people like when when the military wives were getting sick from the water, then, the you know, the government started paying attention. They didn't care if the natives were or if they were removed from the land because mm -hmm. they don't matter in the in the beginning. But when the military wives were complaining about the smell of water and that it was like getting people sick, them and their kids, then, you know, the government started paying attention and as they should have. But that diesel tank is essential for the upcoming war games that the United States wants to, you know, uh, implement in 2022 called RIMPAC, um, which is essentially running war games with a, a you know, a, the scenario that the United States will go to war with China eventually. And so, you know, like maybe I'm extrapolating a little bit, maybe I'm like not being fair to the don't don't look up. But as you pointed out, the you know, the military, the US military pollutes more, emits more greenhouse gases than 130 countries, 130 nations of the world. And, you know, you're just kind of like, yeah, there's this cool science thing sitting on top of this mountain, completely disconnected and removed, you know, from any kind of social relation or an ongoing military occupation of indigenous homelands that was, you know, started by a freaking fruit company, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and the overthrow of a government. And that should be the conversation of climate change itself, right? Because we, we know that the United States has secured U.S. hegemony for not only itself as a political, uh, you know, empire, but also for the fossil fuel industry. Like, yeah, we can make these kind of vague arguments about, oh, you know, we invaded Iraq for oil. But if we think about the sanctions regime that is currently in place, um, where the United States in, in many instances is unilaterally sanctioning about one third of the world's population, it's also strangling out possible alternatives to fight climate change. Yeah. But it is doing so in many instances, such as the case of Venezuela, to, to undermine Venezuelan oil production because Venezuela holds some of the largest oil reserves 
or actually it holds the largest oil reserves in the world. And at the time that Obama, you know, was tightening the screws on, on um, Venezuela, we had what was happening in the United States, a fracking revolution. Um, you know, Obama's uh, energy independence policy, you know, geared the United States towards domestic oil production, mostly at the expense of indigenous people in our lands and the pipelines that they built across it. Not just because, you know, he wanted, you know, money, but because he also wanted to choke out the economic uh, power of, you know, an oil state like Venezuela, mm. because it represented an alternative to neoliberalism. It was taking oil rents and giving them back to the people itself and creating very much socialism in a country, you know, that has been historically colonized. And, you know, that the country was also like, you know, giving aid to us at the time in, in the form of heating assistance, as, as well as many other communities. But what I'm getting at here is like, you know, it might not seem intuitive to think about sanctioning an, a country's oil uh, production capacities, but Venezuela actually has a ministry of eco-socialism thinking about an alternative to fossil fuel industries. Venezuela, 80, 70 to 80% of its, you know, of its electricity comes from hydroelectricity, which I wouldn't, I would argue is not a clean source of, of energy, but it's certainly not as bad as the coal-fired power plants or the nuclear uh, power plants in the United States hmm. and the levels of energy consumption here. So put that into, con you know, put that into, con in the, into context in this movie of Don't uh, Look Up, where in a moment when we think about climate change, you know, you think about these instances and there's many instances of the view from the comet where you're looking at this earth and you know it's very rem reminiscent of the view of the astronauts you know the first astronauts in space looking back at this you know what they called this blueberry and thinking about how inconsequential many of these kind of political conflicts um were were that were happening on earth and you would think that you know a movie like don't look up as much as it criticizes American exceptionalism participates in that very exceptionalism itself because it centers, as you said, like it's, it's, it's honky tonk, you know, it's like honky tonk climate change stuff because it, it, set, it sets the debate as like very much um, geared towards kind of a media elite and the people who, the people who are kind of characterized, you know, you have a Donald Trump figure, uh, you know, characterized in the, in Glenn Coase's presidency, you know, she plays the president. You have, you know, these kind of Midwestern, the parents of Jennifer Lawrence, who's this, you know, scientist who's saying, oh, this, you know, asteroids or this comet is coming to Earth and we need to do something. Her parents are like Trump supporters and like they like won't open the door for her when she, you know, when she comes back home because they're like, we're, we support the jobs that the comet is going to create as if like that's really what like people are really cared about, you know, like it's it's so ridiculous and I get it's satire. But it become it, it's a satire of like a burn list of liberal elites, like oh the dumb redneck Americans who don't want to believe. Everyone is just um, you know uh, uh, interested in um, I, I can't even I don't even know pop culture that well. Um, who's oh, gosh I don't even I'm, now I'm like really outing myself. I'm trying to think of there's a pop star she's really oh Ariana famous. Grande yes Ariana Grande. <laughs> They're too obsessed with Ariana Grande. Uh, and they're too like obsessed with like, you know, the, the kind of the celebrity culture that they, they can't pay attention to this, you know, this comet that's going to wipe out all of humanity. So it goes on both ends, you know, and 
it, it, to me, it just seems like it's, it's silly because first of all, climate change is not a singular event. It's something that has been unfolding over time. And one could argue that it's been, you know, like for indigenous people, for, you know, African people who, who were stolen from their own homelands, that is already an apocalypse that we have undergone. Mm -hmm. Like, you want to preach to us about the end of the world? Like, cool. Okay, you know, Pilgrim, let's talk about the end of the world. Um, you want to put a, a telescope on stolen land occupied by, you know, one of the largest, you know, militaries in world history, like, that is responsible for polluting more than, you know, 140 countries. And you want to talk about you discovered how the end of the world is going to happen. Like, <laughs> you have to destroy our worlds to, to save yours. Like, that's the premise of don't, you know, don't look up. But that's also just the mentality, the cynical mentality of elites in this country. And I would categorize every single person, you know, who wrote that script in uh, for don't get, uh, don't look up as part of being part of that media, that kind of liberal media elite, the very people that they're criticizing in many ways. And so in some ways, it's a, I think it's like a satire of itself because you have Oscar, you know, I think everyone in there, like in the main cast has been either has won an Oscar or has been nominated for one. And so it's like, you know, you have the super group, but the code for the super group is crap. And so like, they can't even perform like it. Uh, um, I'm trying to think of the, um, the actors' names here. Oh gosh, I'm gonna mess it up. Oh, Kate Blanchett. Um, I think she plays a. Yeah, she plays. Um, she plays a immediate. Uh, a, a she's like the the co-host of this kind of like morning show. But you can tell dudes wrote the the script because she just becomes like a promiscuous woman who like corrupts the man the main character leonardo dicaprio and you know knocks him off track and he's really like he's the one who like wow. everyone's listening to because nobody wants to listen to the you know the the dsa chick with you know dyed purple hair or whatever because that's who um jennifer lawrence's character is they want to listen to the, the charismatic man and he you know he gets corrupted and by this like media and so it's like all these misogynistic tropes it's like yo it's 2022 it's like if you can't get casting women like right or like writing women right in, into your role, like what makes you an authority on climate change? Like that that would be like the first thing that I would have, you know, as, as somebody who's watching this to just been like, yeah, like you're just kind of falling into all these tropes. And so I don't wanna like bash too much on it because I would say that there are, you know, like the problem with something like don't get look, uh, don't look up is that it's focused on fast media. And I think mm -hmm. it really reflects the, the kind of idea that we should always have a, like fully formed opinions. We should always have hot takes right away, yeah. even if they're critical and they might, you know, kind of be, um, I don't know, uh, clothed in kind of progressive or lefty language. But the thing about climate change, the thing about genocide, the thing about colonialism, the thing about, you know, ecological collapse is that it has been unfolding for centuries. Mm-hmm. And as indigenous people, as colonized people, as people who are of the earth, as humble people, we know that, you know, these things take years, centuries. You know, this is a long fight. We've been, we've been at this for centuries. And we know, like, look at where it has got us. Like, just because you discovered, you know, climate change with your fancy telescope, you know, or you discovered the end of the world with your fancy telescope atop our sacred mountain, 
doesn't really give you a right to step in ahead of us in line in terms of like what needs to be done to stop and to save this, you know, to stop climate change and to save this planet. Because mm -hmm. you haven't even addressed the, uh, addressed the primary contradiction here is like, why do you have a telescope on this sacred mountain to begin with? You know, like, let's, let's, yeah. let's start there. And um, I think there's just so many different kinds of um, cosmologies and worldviews that get glossed over to say that only white people um, can look at the stars or have only gazed at the stars. Um, and there's, you know, there's been some really amazing work in our own community to talk about winter counts and to talk about our star map and our star knowledge that we had such, you know, uh, advanced forms of um, astronomy and science that we we knew when stars would disappear. There's actually stories about this and when the stars would move. And it was so sophisticated that we knew when the sun was going across the sky and, and traveling through a certain constellation, right? We can't see that constellation when a, the sun is in the sky because the sky turns blue because of nitrogen in the atmosphere. But there was such care and such understanding of, of the world around us and how it impacted us here that we knew that the sun as it went across the sky was traveling through certain you know constellations uh, at any given moment in time and it meant certain things you know it wasn't just like a magical thing it was it meant certain things there was a science behind it, it was provable it was observable it was carried on generation to generation uh, and in some instances, in the winter counts that were, um, you know, that were passed down from family to family, people began to note the changes in the environment. We're talking about 17th, or excuse me, 16th, 17th century, or sorry, 17th and 18th century um, documents from us that were talking about the shift in the climate, it getting colder at some points, getting warmer at other points. And of course, we saw, we witnessed firsthand what what that also meant in terms of the annihilation of entire species. We saw our relatives, the Buffalo Nation, get completely annihilated. Yeah. You know, so when we talk about things like don't get look up, don't look up, maybe you want to appeal to white liberals and the media elite, whatever. That's fine. And that's probably why it got watched, you know, um, because of the hype. I don't think that a lot of people watched it and were like moved by it or it changed minds. It just it just confirmed for the believers in this, you know, kind of um, cynical world, you know, what they've already known is that like, there's the people who believe in science and those who don't, without really realizing like, all the kind of complex and nuanced connections that I, I just brought up, you know, it's like, it's, it's a little bit more than just, you know, whether or not you believe it's happening. It's like, whether or not you have in your own system, an alternative to it. And I don't think settler colonialism, a, a country founded on genocide and theft, you know, is a just society first and foremost. And I don't think there are inbuilt kind of, you know, altruistic outcomes yeah. at the end of the day. Yeah, there is so much there. There is so much there. I, I sort of, I really appreciate this, this sort of um, mentioning of, you know, Sometimes I think with the with the climate conversation, it is, and especially like when it's led by liberals, like there's almost like this notion like scientists are like these apolitical agents that, you know, it's funny because like my best friend is like a materials engineer, has a PhD, and we talk about this all the time. Like, you know, like sciences are not apolitical, right? And 
it's funny because, you know, I was, you know, I, I'm in Miami. So like Havana syndrome is like this huge thing here and like all the madness and, you know, this conversation of like Cuban sciences, then it's like turned on the other way. It's like, oh, well, all Cuban sciences are nothing but um, agents of the state. And then mm -hmm. it's like, and what makes you think that that would be any different for this country? Right. Like, you know, your research is funded by like, you know, the. NIH, like it's, it's just like this, um, this total disconnect and again, exceptionalism of like, no, we are the most correct. We are the most sensible. Um, I'm definitely going to watch Don't Look Up Now because now I'm like, okay, this is juicier than I thought. Um, and, you know, some of, one of the things you mentioned too is like this sort of like really cynical attitude that's almost like very... And, and kind of um, left Twitter could really be like this. So I really have to like monitor my time on there. It's very like nihilistic, honestly, mm -hmm. right? It's just like everything's shit. We're not going to dismantle this settler colonial empire. The military is just getting bigger every, you know, every year. And like, that's just that. And like, everyone's depressed and this sucks. I'm not saying entirely that there's not some like some reason to that, you know, and I certainly feel some of those waves come through sometimes. But I think as I deepen like my internal and like ancestral spiritual practice, that feels really wrong. Like mm -hmm. I almost feel like in betrayal. And this this thing you said of like so many of our people have already experienced a form of apocalypse. And I've been thinking a lot more of that and how so many of our ancestors like decided to continue life right against what seems against all the odds and i'm trying to hold on to that especially now that it's a new year and like trying to be more mindful about my rituals like trying to to yeah like really hone in and honor all of that i'm curious you know as you see like this sort of like nihilistic especially around the climate right that it feels like this this it's not a singular event right it's like the consequence and byproduct of centuries of colonialism and white supremacy and like the development and the maintenance of capitalism that just feels for so many of us like might feel just too too big to tackle mm -hmm. how do you make sense of that and i think what are yeah how do you make sense of that and kind of like how because i think it's really detrimental i think that sort of attitude can also be very paralyzing in our organizing work and our research even in our relationships to one another to nature um and yeah i'm trying to move away from that personally so maybe it's more a personal question no <laughs> um but yeah i'm curious like how do you make sense of that attitude and what are some of like the dangers of being stuck in that i think i mean it's a really good question and i don't really get asked this question very much because I don't really share like a lot about my own spiritual beliefs, first of all, because um, I think when you start talking about spirituality with, especially from indigenous perspectives or even like Lakota perspective, you know, we call it, we don't have a spirituality. We have which basically means the Lakota way of living life. Right. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole kind of, you know, pantheon of different values and practices that one does and tries to aspire to. Um, it doesn't make it inherently like revolutionary on one hand, but, you know, I think combined with the struggle that we've experienced over the last couple of centuries and our continued existence, it does have like, a, it plays a central role in who we are. I mean, the American Indian movement, the red power movement were first and foremost spiritual movements. They brought back things that were, you know, outlawed. Like we've had, like not until 1978 were we allowed to practice our religion and spirituality mm -hmm. openly. 
And, you know, that's, that's quite a long time. It's almost a centuries uh, that we had to go underground. Um, you know, and I, I think we haven't really fully emerged from that, you know, in a way that's, um, we can't really recover all that has been lost. And I, I don't think we are trying to do that. Um, but one thing I found incredibly powerful and inspiring was when I went to uh, Brazil and, you know, we were invited to a place called Belém, which is like in the, it's named after Bethlehem. Um, um, and they're very progressive and they don't, they're like Bethlehem Palestine. Exactly. <laughs> like very, very clear about that. Um, and so they were, you know, we went to this meeting with, you know, the MST, the, uh, there were some people against the dams. There were some indigenous organizations there, uh, APB, you know, all these kind of walks of life. And they begin this political meeting with prayers and with songs and with acknowledging their ancestors. And I, you know, I'm speaking from personal experience. I remember when I first became, you know, I mean, I've been a Marxist for a long time, but I remember when I started organizing with the indigenous community, there were certain people who identified themselves on the left, communist, socialists, even sometimes anarchists, um, would actually say really derogatory things about our spiritual practices and the need to actually have a prayer at the beginning of a, of a meeting or to even just sing a song. And it always bothered me. And so I've kind of always just kind of like put it, I was like, okay, whatever, you know, like I'm going to like, I'm, it's not important. Like you're obviously disturbed by this and I don't really know why, cause you're not from here, but, yeah. <laughs> but, but I don't, you know, but, but we need you as allies and like we, we have a, you know, a common struggle. And, but it always kind of bothered me because there would be this kind of sense of like superiority that like atheism or secularism as they practiced it and understood it was far superior to whatever we were doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and that that was some kind of like holdover from a past that we should just, you know, get over or something like that. And so it, it always kind of bothered me. And I was like, I'm just not going to ever enter into this debate. Yeah. And, you know, the first thought that came to my mind when they began the singing um, I just started like I, I had to offer a song, and so I offered a song. Um, and the group that I was with, most of them were from the United States, couldn't offer anything. Mm. And I offered one of our traveling songs as Lakota people, and I had never actually sung it outside of a con the context of our own community. And it, like it really, you know, set me at ease. You know, it was like it was like they actually understood and actually had something to share. But then I also, you know, later on, I was thinking about that you know, that whole experience and like why it felt so good. And I was thinking about what would happen if these same people who, you know, entered into this space where there was this prayer going on and said those things, you know, mm -hmm. like, it, and like, here they are, you know, uh, many of the people who were involved in the MST, like one of the largest left movements mm -hmm. are centering spiritualism at the beginning of their meetings, you know, and we don't, I think, you know, the, I'm not like angry at the people who want to be secularist or, or uh, atheists or whatever. Um, that's their journey. Like that's what they want. You know, that's what they believe in as much as they say they don't believe in anything. It's actually a profound belief to not believe in anything. Um, and that's what we would say as Lakota people. Um, but, you know, the thing I think what's ha has been internalized is, is not so much because um, I get where they're coming from. I understand but their reaction is kind of an epistemological reaction within the Western tradition 
um, it's it, puritanical in many ways. It's like it's as as much as it's trying to exercise um, these kind of bad practices of you know spirituality, religion, or whatever. It at the same time is like recodifying many of the worst aspects of it of the puritanical thing. It's like yeah. There's a reason why your hips only go up and down and not side to side, you know, like, why are we dancing? Like, let's dance. Let's be alive. Like, like, why are we afraid of our bodies? Like, why are we not singing? You know, and I, and this is the the reason why I'm bringing this up is because I think that nihilism in the United States and on the U.S. left is partly due. And I'm not like saying that, oh, they're the godless left or whatever, but you do, there is an intangible element of spiritual spiritualism and spirituality um, that you cannot just explain away. Like there are things um, you need to think about yourself above and beyond. And I do see that in a lot of my comrades who are atheists, they do understand that like they do talk about their ancestors and they have an understanding, um, you know, and that, you know, I I support it, but it's at the same time, it's like, I can, there's not a contradiction of me being a communist or a Marxist and also being living a like living a Lakota way of life and trying to be a good relative because I actually see them as very much complementary mm. and that it actually makes sense for them to be together, right? And so like I have a spiritual basis and understanding. I know that there's something beyond just the, the kind of material needs that we have. Um, we have to satisfy those first and foremost, I believe, before we can even begin to understand the kind of spiritual you know, enrichment and nourishment that we need, because part of that spiritual, when we say prayer in Lakota, it's wocheckie, which doesn't mean putting your hands together and praying to a sky genie. Mm-hmm. When we say wocheckie, it means to greet a relative. You know, mm-hmm. chie actually means to cry, because we believe that the greatest form of like relationality that we can have is to embrace each other and to mm-hmm. embrace something that is living. Uh, and to recognize it for for its value and its worth, whether you know it's it gives its life to us, whether it you know um, whether it um, you know embraces us as a relative or helps us in some way or it has it possesses a mystery that we don't understand, and only by being in relationship to it can we get closer to an understanding, both spiritually, uh, uh, also like physically, and and what that thing is and this goes beyond just what you know the kind of binary of what is alive and not alive in the western sense um you know and it doesn't discount western science in fact i think you brought up a really important point it's like not just because it's science doesn't mean it's good you know just because you say democracy doesn't mean it's good democracy there's capitalist democracy there's liberal democracy under that form of democracy we saw mass enslavement and genocide doesn't make it good, but doesn't mean that we throw democracy out because I think everyone aspires to some kind of democracy. It's how it's how you know we decide what that democracy is is important, right? And how it is it operationalizes. The same goes with science. Indigenous people had a form of validating truth, you know, based on material and physical experiments, but also based on other things. The realm of science. And the institutions of science in the United States are fundamentally different, as you pointed out, than those that are like in in Cuba, you know, where science people are acquiring scientific knowledge and advancing scientific technology uh, for the benefit of people, right? Whereas somebody like Elon Musk, mm. you know, has a has a quote unquote philanthropic philanthropic 
whatever enterprise to what he's doing, but most of his profits come from the military. Like he's mm -hmm. launching, you know, <laughs> missiles into space. Um, and, endorsing and, coups in Bolivia. <laughs> endorsing coups he's in Bolivia. All over the place. I mean, he's there's there's a reason why he comes from South Africa and came to the United States. Exactly. Let's just be honest. Like his, exactly. His, he comes from a family of of miners, uh, mine <laughs> owners. You know, like there's not there's there's a reason why he came here. Mm -hmm. But it's you know like it gets to that that larger point where it's like I think you know on the left there's yeah there is nihilism on Twitter, um, but I also think there's incredible amount of hope. The people that I work with on a daily basis or used to work with on a daily basis, I moved recently, um, you know, were addicts um, or are addicts or people who were in, in jail, you know, people who were you know on the streets like months before we, I started working with them. And I would say like 99% of them have some kind of spiritual belief and practice hmm. and are motivated well beyond the kind of, you know, pessimism that we see online because they didn't, they didn't give up. They're, they're not opposed to Marxism. They're not opposed to communism. They understand though, to be a revolutionary, you have to be with the people yeah. and you have to be among the people. And, you know, in our culture, we share that kind of, you know, spiritual bond. And I think that I don't, I mean, it is, it's hard to say that I'm not like telling, I'm not telling non-native people or whatever to come like, yeah, come to the ceremony, you know, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you have to be careful. I don't, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just mean, like, that's your journey. You know, I don't know what to say. I mean, I really don't know what to say other than that the left in the United States is primarily made up of brown people, you know, uh, and non-white people. And we don't just give up the things that we've known for centuries just because you said so, you know, like that the missionaries mm -hmm. told us to do that. Um, but also, you know, Karl Marx never said, you know, don't go to a sweat lodge. Like, and also <laughs> Karl Marx is not God, you know, he's a human being. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, like, and so am I, you know, and so are the people who have taught me they're human, they're humble enough to say they're human and that they make mistakes. But I think like, yeah, I think the nihilism for me, it's like, you know, a an elder told me once, she said, you don't even own your own life. You're only here to ensure the coming of the next generation. And, you know, I'm not, you know, yeah, I'm an individual, but I'm also part of a collective whole and I have certain social and collective responsibilities. And maybe some might see that as kind of fatalistic or whatever, or like destiny. But it's it's you know and that you know destiny oh we can't talk about that but it's like it's like that to me has been a motivating factor for me you know since I was a young person and began to really think about the choices that I made in my life and how I have to dedicate myself to a greater good mm -hmm. um, you know and so like that I guess a really long answer to your question but it's like <laughs> I think we have to transcend that nihilism not by kind of further reflecting on the failures of the left, but actually like looking at what's, you know, where the alternatives are actually emerging and help organize them. Ooh, I'm, I'm so, so, so grateful for everything you just said. And I, even in my own personal journey, I can attest that the more serious, the more disciplined, the more rigorous I've been about my spiritual practice, um, I think the more disciplined and rigorous I have been able to be about my political organizing and becoming a better socialist or communist, Marxist, com you know, 
just organizer and political worker. And I'm, I feel really, you know, and I think this is just like hearing you, it's like, it feels really affirming, right, to hear more of this, because I think, you know, especially in the United States, it's like so binary, right? And, you know, I do work with a somatics coach where, like, you know, we're trying to deal with, like, this separation of, like, mind and body that we're taught in this country and how we value mind over body and, like, the mm. intuitive knowledge that our body holds for literally millennia um, and how we are just taught to suppress that and just kind of value whatever's coming out of here so yeah it, it I, I really appreciate everything you offered and kind of like all these specifics you know i think it's funny being in a lot of movement meetings and where that is a struggle right like trying to bring ritual um sometimes almost it feels like performative but yeah it's not something that is like totally in the dna right mm. like right now and i think a lot of young folks are sort of trying to reclaim that, right? Like the dance, the joy, the play, the just like the holistic aspect of it, of it and the work that we do. Um, but I really appreciate everything you um, said there. And I'm glad that it was long-winded because I was like thinking of so many things. But Nick, I want to thank you for being in conversation with me. This has been so lovely. I feel like I always learn so much from your talks and I'm definitely leaving with a lot of reflections and gratitude. Thanks so much, Nikki. And maybe we can have you on the Red Nation podcast sometime soon. Yeah. Thanks so much.